she shrieked and shrieked for her mother. But her mother was already there. Her mother was the monster. Holly Black. Devil's Dorp, the podcast, is a killer audio creations production in partnership with Showmax for the Showmax original documentary series, Devil's Dorp. This podcast may contain graphic information related to the crimes committed by the perpetrators. Sensitive listeners should take this into consideration. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Killer Audio Creations, Showmax, or their partners. Welcome back to Devil's Dorp, the official companion podcast to the Showmax original documentary series, Devil's Dorp. If you haven't yet listened to episode 1 and 2 of the podcast, or watched the Devil's Dorp documentary yet, I highly recommend you do that first. My name is Nicole Engelbrecht, true crime podcaster, freelance writer, and audiobook narrator, and I'm your guide on this journey through one of South Africa's strangest true crime cases. In episode 1 and 2 respectively, we discussed the religion aspect of this case, and then the psychology of some of the offenders. Three of the offenders that we didn't discuss in episode 2, though, are Marinda Stain and her two children, LaRue and Marcel. The reason I left those three for this episode is because, as seems to be a pattern in this case, there are a whole number of rabbit holes that spring off just from those three people, their crimes and their psychology. One of the most shocking aspects of this case was how Marinda Stain used her two children to do Cecilia's bidding. Although we will probably never know how much of this was done willingly and how much was truly coerced, there is a good amount of evidence that Marinda led her children astray. We know that Marinda divorced from the children's father when they were quite young. According to their father and his new wife, he did his best to see the children as much as possible, but Marinda eventually made that impossible. We now understand that this shutting out of the children's father occurred at a time that coincided with Marinda starting to develop stricter, more fundamentalist views on religion. She'd started consuming books and CDs, some of which she got from Ria Grunewald, which she felt guided her in raising her children as good Christians. As part of this, she made the children throw away some of their toys, certain items of clothes with Disney characters on them, books she found unacceptable, and certain movies were also banned. The irony of this alleged spiritual house-cleaning, considering what would come to pass, is almost overwhelming. We know that Marinda had another very brief and unsuccessful marriage, which allegedly broke down in large part because she didn't get along with her new stepdaughter. Marinda was a well-respected high school teacher. Her pupils loved her, and her colleagues respected her. 
even after she'd met Cecilia and started to commit her crimes with Electus Perdias, Marinda still managed to maintain her reputation at work. When police initially tried to get information from the school, her colleagues were fiercely protective. Until they saw the ammunition hall she'd been storing in her classroom, of course. Socially, she became completely cut off from anyone outside of Electus Perdias, as did her children. In episode 2, Louis Averbuch spoke about how these offenders, despite carrying this pathology, would still operate very well in certain parts of their lives. And I think that's what we see with Marinda. We know that she had to have carried some form of pathology before meeting Cecilia. As Louis explained in episode 2, Cecilia was just the catalyst, but she was still able to conduct herself successfully in her career and pre-Cecilia in social situations. Where she seemed to fall down was in close, interpersonal relationships. I asked Louis about how someone like Marinda could have been controlled and conditioned so deeply by Cecilia. And again, I think that's the same with Zach. Being able to function well in certain layers and certain contexts in society. Sometimes create the illusion that you can function well and solidly in other areas of your life as well. And again, we can say that Marinda could not have been a well-functioning individual before she met uh, Cecilia. It's impossible. She definitely was well-functioning in certain areas of her life. And Marinda's track record with interpersonal relationships also seems to give us some insight into her psyche. And I think that's what we can sort of count on if we take all the members individually and we retrace their history and peruse their individual relationships with friends, family members, uh, uh, loved ones through the years. One should find a pattern of unsatisfactory interpersonal relationships, at least with at least the, the dissatisfaction with a lot of the people that were involved with. Because of that, something that was inside you that enabled you to murder and to act on, on Cecilia's wishes must have been there before, and it would have played out in different ways in relationships as well. LaRue and Marcel would report varying levels of physical and emotional abuse from their mother during their time with Cecilia. LaRue was physically afraid of his mother. Marcel too, although she doesn't appear to have been beaten the way that LaRue was. And I wondered, was Marinda always like this as a mother? Did this control and abuse only start when she met Cecilia, or was it there before? There are no reports of physical abuse pre-Electus Perdias but she does appear to have been very controlling. Here's what Louis had to say about Marinda from a maternal perspective. One can also question the functioning well as a mother. I'm, I'm not really prepared to accept with, without a bit of an argument that she could have been a, a wonderful mother because the tendencies that Cecilia activated must have been there already. 
You can't install that in somebody so quickly. We'll talk more about Marinda's relationship and impact on her children a little later when I speak to Mariska Kutzer, the journalist that fell in love with LaRue Stain. Another aspect of Marinda that I found interesting, though, was her deep dedication to Cecilia. She was the only one of the bunch that stuck to the plan and tried to continue to take the blame throughout the trial. She was also the only one of the group that expressed pleasure at killing. Much to the victim's family's horror, she explained the crimes she'd committed in great detail and, even worse, explained how great she felt when she killed the victims. Everyone was, of course, understandably horrified by these expressions, and that got me wondering whether that pleasure was real. What if Miranda was saying all of these things, not because she necessarily meant them, but to draw attention away from Cecilia? Sort of a, hey, look at the monster over here that loves killing, and don't look at the woman over there. I asked Louis if he felt this gleeful expression of bloodlust could just have been a distraction. Well, it's only speculation, but that's the impression I got from from watching the court material, that at that stage she was still firmly 100% loyal to Cecilia. And she was literally trying to, to deflect attention from Cecilia. She was serving the cause and serving her leader. Obviously, we, we don't know for sure, but I'm, I'm, I'm basically, in my mind, I'm convinced that's what happened. It, it was a very simple, straightforward testimony focused on one thing and one thing only, drawing all the blame to her. It's almost like she's been hypnotized. Marinda really was very enamoured with Cecilia, and she appears to continue to be. Many of the people I spoke to wondered whether that was a strategic move from Marinda. Surviving in a prison environment is often about who you know and also your reputation. If she went into prison as a snitch, she would not have been seen in a very good light. It may be easy to assume that Marinda had tried to protect her children in this trial, but really, when the children were first arrested, she tried to convince them to take the rap on their own. It was only when Captain Ben Boyson found her will, in which she basically disowned both of them, and LaRue started talking, that she then tried to at least keep Marcel out of jail. Even here, though, I don't think that that was out of any maternal sense of responsibility. Instead, I think that she wanted to have at least one member of her family on the outside for convenience' sake. Marcel Stain was just 14 years old when she watched her mother kill Michaela Valentine. She even stabbed the woman once herself. After that, she would attend several murder scenes with her mother, and it seemed that she was being groomed into being a more active participant in future. Marcel is interesting to me because she initially presented as a really tough young girl, 
even in the photographs we saw of her at the ATM, she gives off this don't-mess-with-me vibe that's almost palpable. And that continued, according to Captain Ben Boyson, for most of his interactions with her. She refused to talk to him. She swore at him. But then, toward the end of the trial, she did an about turn. And I couldn't help but wonder which was the real Marcel. It also indicates some, some sign of, of normality or less pathology. Uh, look, she, she had a raw deal with the sentencing. I think she did. What is more normal? Suddenly realizing that you've got to get out of here and testify against all these people or you go to jail for the rest of your life or sticking to your guns like a mum did. You know, and, and one gets the idea that she, she was young, not coming from a, a position of a lot of insight and experience. Yeah, it, 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 a life could have been different. Right? And I'm not sure whether the present sentence than the one that she got ultimately serves any goal, you know. Could have benefited from correction. I honestly believe that. It, it's hard likely that she, that she, after this whole, whole mess, would have again got involved in, in a situation like that. So I, I don't know if the, if the community needed to be protected from her. But, you know, like you say, uh, um, it, it's unlikely that, that these people are all brilliant manipulators and managed to fool everybody in court. It's, it's totally unlikely. I mean, not even Cecilia fooled anybody in court. You know, one, one, can, one can almost understand normal 14-year-olds doing something like that under a lot of pressure and manipulation. It, it doesn't necessarily speak to serious psychopathy or violent tendency. It doesn't necessarily. Not, with, not at the age of 40. And I guess this is fair enough. We can't try to fit reason into an unreasonable situation. Captain Ben Boyson also spoke of his experiences with Marcel, though. Um, they took her also. Lerua shot in his bum. He shot himself in his bum with a prune tutu. And then they didn't wait for him to come out of the, out of the hospital. They could have waited a day or two because it was not serious. But they, they said no you need to go and kill and rob the mayors now. And they took her again to the mayor's house. The only places where LaRue went was when Jared was killed and when his mother forced him to kill McGregor, McAlpine, Schofield and Hanley Latigan. At the end of the day also, he didn't want to kill Hanley Latigan. He's not going to kill her. It was very traumatic for him. When we spoke to him before the trial, before he went to testify, you know, he was in tears because he said he cannot kill a woman. And his mother told him, if you don't kill her, I'll shoot you with her. But to kill her, you will kill her. Otherwise, you will, you will die with her. And that's at the end of the why he strangled her. And also, he didn't do the vicious killing. He did strangling. He didn't take out the knife and stab them like Marinda and Zak. And, and at the end of the day, also, Marcel stabbed Michaela. That was, at that stage, her best friend. You know, um, Michaela was good for them. Okay, Michaela was part of them and part of the, the first killing. But, you know, how do you go 
and kill a person that you saw every day and it's actually the only person that is near your age that you are dealing with just because your mother think you need to kill her and and Cecilia think uh, you need to be part of the killing. And there's someone else that has some insight into Marcel Stein. Mariska Kutzer is a journalist who initially entered this case simply by covering one of the murders, like any other story, to begin with. And then, as she puts it, she became the story. Mariska has a very complex involvement in this case, in many different ways, and I'll chat about that in a minute. For now, here is her recounting of her experiences with Marcel. I am Mariska Kutzer, a journalist and someone that followed the case very, very closely. Let me tell you a bit about Marcel. I don't think a lot of people know about Marcel. Marcel is such a lovely girl. I swear to you, that energy, she's got this vibrant energy when she talks and her eyes light up. But you know when they always talk about how smart Marcel is? Marcel is even smarter than that. Um, we went and visited her once, right? And she was still in the holding cells in Joburg. I, I visited her there and at Khosi Mampuri this side. But at some point, they had a big problem there in their section because they couldn't boil hot water because the kettle was leaking. And it was causing a commotion and what, what, what. And Marcel, you must know, she's telling me the story. She's got a, a prison outfit is now like a dress. So it's very cute. She, she's got a prison dress on. And she's got um, the same prison fabric is around her head. So it's wrapped up nicely. And her nails were even done because they bought inside there, obviously. So now she tells me the story about them, you know, this big commotion in the sec, in their room or section because they can't get hot water for coffee, tea or whatever. And then Marcel fixed the leaking kettle. But can I tell you with what she fixed it with? And I thought to myself, that's amazing. She fixed the, the kettle that was leaking with a toothbrush. So what she did is she, now, so she explained to me she was burning the toothbrush at the side, melting the plastic, covering the holes. And I mean, I think this was before she was, maybe just after her 21st birthday. But I mean, things like that, people don't know about Marcel, you know. And both of them speak fluent Zulu, but she, she's very good with it. You know, remember, because she's very academical. Larue learned Zulu because he's in those um, circles. So he learned it, I want to say speaking-wise. But, you know, with Marcel, you see that extra touch in her, you know. But she's super bubbly. Like, you would not believe how bubbly she is. And I can remember when I was looking at her, she's got a mother's eyes. Like, if you look nicely at her, like, while she was talking, being bubbly, and I couldn't help but see her mother's features in her. I think it was the eyes and the mouth. I also saw, because remember, I visited her mother as well. So here and there, there was a gesture that she, you know, says, I'm awesome good. But yeah, she's really, it's, a, it's sad that she ended up there. But at least she's studying. I can't remember what or how far. But I mean, she's such a bubbly, brilliant girl, actually. And a personality for days. You know, if you think I am nice and bubbly and friendly, she sounds like that too if you get her around the right people, you know. Obviously, she won't talk like that in court. <laughs> Mariska Kutzer would come to be an integral link between LaRue, Marcel, Mirinda, and the outside. But before we chat about that, 
Let's talk about LaRue Stein. The thing that struck me about LaRue is that he presented with what I can only call a little boy lost persona. Initially, he seemed happy to be taking the rap for everyone. But then he realized that his mother had left a will in which she essentially disowned both her children. He turned against her and agreed to give his testimony to the state. It would be this testimony that would sink the rest of the ship. He claimed, though, that he had only committed the murders because he felt he had no other choice. The psychological and physical abuse that his mother had inflicted upon him left him terrified for his life. He'd watched her commit murders. He felt that she would not think twice about killing him. Call me sceptical, but I wondered out loud to Louis Arthurbach whether this little boy lost persona was real or if it was just a manipulation. Look, it's obviously totally possible that that he's a brilliant manipulator and fooled everybody with his shocked and, and almost desolate way of presenting himself. But I got the impression, at least, that we're dealing with the whole issue of dependent personality traits. LaRue comes over as a follower and almost a, a, a pathological follower. One gets the idea he would have done whatever they asked him to do without really thinking about it uh, because, the, because his mother and Cecilia and them knows what is best. So his horror and shock to find out that, that they haven't got his back probably must have been huge, I think. And, and, and I, feel the, I feel the most sorry for him. It seems that he could have maybe benefited from correction, that he maybe has a chance that he, you know, that he, it doesn't seem like the type of person that would do this even in, in, in other circumstances. These circumstances, because his mother was involved. I don't think anywhere, you know, he, he would have, it would have been hardly unlikely that Leroux would have, that he's a violent killer. So he portrays less pathology than the other members. Still, must still be a lot of pathology. And in his case, probably a lot of dependence issues. Leroux called Captain Ben Boyson, Um. They seemed to build a bit of a bond, as much as that is possible in such a situation. Here are some insights from Ben about LaRue Stain. You know what? Children forms their life between, I say, 7 and 12, 13 years old. And what you see and what you go through and what you experience every day, I think between 7 years and 12 years, you'll become at the end of, of, of the day. So I think he, he and he says was... Um, given a bad dice role for Marinda to be their mother and for her to expose their children to Cecilia. Even Cecilia's children was on, on, on bed in some of these videos that I saw and they were very small, seeing their mother spitting blood and jumping against the wall and screaming and stuff like that. 
they were brainwashed in a manner that is not, you know, normal children go, don't, don't go through that. And also they don't, didn't have friends. They need to go to school to come back and to work for Cecilia and to look after her and, and stuff like that. And if they wanted to go out to friends, uh, they were ridiculed um, by Cecilia and by Marinda. In a way, you know, I, I've got four children. Um, so I see my children in there. And then, then you think, wow, can a mother do that to her own children? Um, if there was one person that needed to, to get a death penalty, it's, it's a, for sure. Marcel, Marcel is a very, very odd person. You know, all of them, they don't show remorse. I think the only one who showed remorse at the end of the day was LaRue, uh, when he was found guilty and sent it to, um, to prison. But, um, the others never showed any remorse. And, all, and the, you know, people come to me and they said, yeah, but how come you didn't give Michelle the same treatment as, as, as LaRue? Um, I said, but, you know, I spoke to them and I said, come clear, you were children. The court will look at, at that, but she was harachat. And in the 2012 murders where she was involved going to Natasha's house. She was involved going to um, Rex Bendixon's house. She was involved going with the mother to kill Michaela. Why did the mother took her and not the brother that was older than her? Because she was more acceptable to what they were going to do than LaRue was. Yeah, I, I actually feel more empathy for LaRue than I feel for her. I think that's Captain Ben Boyson's emotional reaction to the deep betrayal of children in this case. Says everything we need to hear. There were some deeply horrific crimes committed here, and Miranda committed one of the worst. Perhaps the person with the most insight into LaRue's stain at this point is Mariska Kutzer. Mariska's life would become forever changed by this case, and for many different reasons. When I think about all of the ways that her path crossed with elements of this case, it's almost mind-blowing. First, she was called out to report on the story. Then, she figured out that one of the victims was a long-time family friend. Then, Her cousin was one of the people initially arrested in this case, who was eventually proven to be innocent. And then Mariska Kutzer fell in love with one of the accused. I chatted to Mariska at length for this series, and you'll hear her insights in this episode, as well as episode four. In this episode, I will predominantly focus on her insights around LaRue, Here's Mariska with a bit of information about her journey into this case and meeting LaRue Stain. Me and a colleague while working for Heisenhut, um, I covered the Krugersdorp murders from the Krugersdorp News to um, Heisenhut. And then me and a colleague decided that 
we were going to write a book together. And she um, was going to do the victims, and I decided I would write the suspects. So we were sitting and brainstorming and brainstorming. And from the beginning, you know, the plan was we want to get an exclusive interview, you know, with one of these people. And we decided that we actually decided on LaRue because he was the only one that confessed. And he was the only one that showed a little bit of heart. So I tried to make contact with him in December already. It didn't work. You know, I was so, so close. Because I was obsessed with this case, right, I never stopped investigating it. So I would always talk to everyone about everything. And because I knew I was going to target LaRue, because remember, he was, out of the link, he was the weakest link because he was honest, right? But now I knew this is the person that I was going to have to convince. So I did a lot of research as well about him. So by the time that I actually gathered the guts to go and visit him in prison. It's, it was about, let's say, two months later. And by this time, I was fully prepared in the sense of I had a very good idea who LaRue was as a person, not as a murderer or what, what, what. I mean, as a person. And when I went and visited him, I remember I was so, so scared. Man, you know, sweating hands, nervous, like, am I putting my family's life in, je uh, in jeopardy? You know, am I putting myself in danger? And when I first met him, you know, I was so pleasantly um, relieved because here I was waiting for a monster, you know, like uh, not even like a monster. Think about an assassin or something because, I mean, they were killing people left, right and center. And out comes this young man. I mean, I still remember he had like, you can almost say still a big yeah, baby face, you know, but his big brown eyes, baby face and wild hair. So I was pleasantly surprised because I thought I was going to get a monster or a Satanist or, you know, someone really, really bad. Yeah, and here comes out a lighty, you know, and then he had manners as well. I remember he said, dog. in our first meeting, I threw all throughout all my fishing rods to get a connection. So I spoke about Krugersdorp, how it's going there because he hasn't been there, let's say, in a year and a half because he's been behind bars. I spoke about music that he likes because if you look at his look, you could easily see he's into alternative music. So I spoke about music. I spoke to him about drugs and partying and, you know, that type of thing just to get – a connection and I said to him in my first meeting with him I said to him you know what I really want to write your story but I don't want a confession or yes I did it I want to write I want another story you know and I said to him so when you are ready let me know and before I left he asked me my cell phone number and I you know told it to him and he memorized it but I had to give it to him twice and I thought no nah, he's not going to remember this so this was about, let's say, 11 in the day on a Friday or whatever. By that afternoon, I got, please call me, like from a unknown number. And I was used to getting um, please call me and messages from um, numbers. I don't know, because I'm a journalist. So they would print my number in the newspaper or whatever. And I don't always phone people because I'm not always, you know, like when I'm off, I don't want to be bothered. But anyways, something about this, please call me, felt urgent. But after the third, please call me, I decided to phone back. 
And I was pleasantly surprised to hear that it was LaRue, you know. Um, and that's kind of how our bond started. You know, every time he would get an opportunity, I don't know, borrow a phone, whatever, you know, he would try and make contact to say hello. And based on this point, we started becoming friends. So not friends, but it was, do you know what it was? It's like having a pen pal, right? You know, old school pen pal that you can write to. But this pen pal, you know, from the beginning, you will never, it will never be a friend friend. You know, so in your head, it's like, it's two different worlds. So this is my pen, he became my pen pal in prison. You know, when we would talk during the day, he would phone me every day or I would phone him vice versa. Just for short times, I mean seven minutes. You know, sometimes he would contact me from the ticky box, which they are allowed to do. Um, other times when he was still in a waiting trial, we all know how it goes in prison. There's cell phones, there's drugs, there's everything. But, um, you know, whenever he had got the opportunity to borrow someone's phone, you know, he would make contact. And our friendship started with, because you remember now, I wanted to write the book. So in the back of my mind, this is my mission. But now, you know, he kept on contacting me. And we started exchanging worlds in the sense of I would tell him, Yo, you know, I'm working on this and this story. You know, and that's an escape for his world. And in the meanwhile, in exchange, he entertains me with the prison life. And that's why I wanted more and more and more. The thing is, and I really want to say this, it is not my 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 position to judge him, you know, because people, I know people do good and bad things, but as a journalist, I'm supposed to be balanced. So if you want me to judge him beforehand and write stories out of that angle, Am I really being fair? And I'm asking that question to everyone out there. Yeah, so that's so our friendship was based on this thing of we don't try, uh, we don't judge each other. I don't judge him, he doesn't judge me. And we started sharing each other's worlds, you know. It's difficult to put the LaRue that testified about strangling people to death in the same lens as the LaRue that Marizga talks about. Let me give you an idea about Larry, what people don't know about him. And it shows you the innocence. There's an innocence and then he's tainted, right? But the innocence is I once wrote a story, a murder story, right? And I couldn't even remember. I think it was a final bow story. And I think it was a husband that killed his wife and two kids. And now he's got a girlfriend and he's in jail. And I can remember because when I went, when I go visit Larry, I would take him the stories I wrote for the week. So I'll take him a magazine or a newspaper. You know, and it's nice because he's like my biggest fan. He reads everything I write. But I remember now with this one story, and it just shows you, right, this murder story. I took him um, the magazine with the story, and then afterwards, I think he wrote it in a letter. I don't even know. But he was so disgusted with this guy that killed his family. Like, he was upset about it. He's like, how the hell did this guy kill these people? You know, and in that moment, I had to remind him, but LaRue, he also killed people, you know. But it just shows, that showed me his initial feeling. That first heartbeat, I mean, it's near, near murder now. He's not a natural murderer, you know, because he felt upset about that. And I had to remind him, but um, I, I think I literally said to him, um, aren't you in jail? And what are you sitting in jail for again? You know, and then we would laugh at the irony, but... 
that's what made our friendship good is, you know, that, that type of thing. I'm going to be honest with you. When I first heard that a journalist had fallen in love with one of the accused in this case, I was a bit shocked. That's not something you hear about every day. But I am really glad that I got to speak to Mariska Kutza, because this woman has been to hell and back, and people still judge her. Yes, what she did was not the smartest move, and she knows that. But she's paid for that choice over and over. And now, she just wants to move on with her life and take something positive out of this. And I think we should be able to give her that. Do you know what it felt like, right? And remember, a, a lot of time has passed now, so the feelings have, let's say, leveled. But it was, it's like forbidden fruit, you know? And it's also because at that stage I was so, in such a bad place, let's say, with my current uh, marriage. But what happened here is it was basically we were filling in each other's holes. So I wanted someone to be interested in me. LaRue had nothing else to do. So he could give all his interest to me. You know what I mean? But um, the, the, the general feeling, I actually never wanted it to come out, you know, because I knew that this is forbidden fruit. Like you remember those red lights we were talking about, ding, 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 ding. My red lights were going off because I knew people don't do this. I knew people were going to be shocked. And I knew people wouldn't understand it. And my family certainly didn't, you know. I um, I was totally outcasted by, by family. But if I mean family, I'm talking about my mother, my sister, my grandmother. You know, at some point, I think I had one member of my family actually talking to me. Even my friends, a lot of people, you know, just kind of wrote me off or they pushed me away, they rejected me. I, I think it was such a valuable lesson, you know. Personally, I learned so much. I asked Mariska if she had any insights into Marinda's role as a mother before she became involved with Cecilia. Definitely um, when Cecilia came onto the scene. Before Cecilia, Marinda was like a puppy. She spent her weekends in the hair um, salons getting her hair done and her nails done. You know, um, that's how people knew her as a very warm, you know, pretty woman. And when she started um, hanging out with Cecilia, that's when Cecilia started influencing her. So Cecilia told her that LaRue has um, demons, hojas to him. So she would say if LaRue goes out working or goes to school, he comes back, he's got the demons that he found during the day so that's why he's not allowed into the bedroom so everyone would sit in cecilia's bedroom or on a bed and he's not allowed to go in because he has hojas you know so that's how they would start you know excluding him so that started when cecilia was on the scene but i mean at this point they were in high school already i think Mariska has strong feelings about the lesson that should be taken about parenting from this case, and also how the children's father could perhaps have saved them. Well, as long as people learn a lesson here, you know, and what I, a lesson I think should be learned out of this is it takes a community to raise a child, you know, 
there's a lot of people that could have spoken out a long time ago. I don't know. Maybe it could have been stopped earlier. But, yeah, it's really senseless. If I think about it now, you know, I totally blame Cecilia. And I do, uh, can I be honest, I blame the family. I blame I blame the father as much as I've had a good relationship with them. I blame him. I blame the aunts. I blame everyone because if you realize that someone in your family is being tested and being off, I mean, LaRue and Michelle didn't see their family for something like eight years or nine years. So is there not one person in that family that cared enough to actually try? You know what I mean? Or, or have we as a society become so messed up in our ways that it's okay to not talk to your family? You know what I mean? Because see what you're missing. Um, could someone not have seen that Miranda was starting to look weird and the children and, you know, but it's like no one cared. That's why I said earlier, it takes a community to raise a child. If you know your family is doing some weird stuff, think about it. From the outside, it could look like they're just doing drugs and they're into tattoos and piercings, so I've lost them. Meanwhile, they are killing people after people after people. She tells me that after LaRue decided to testify, the rest of the group, including Marcel and Marinda, turned on him. Mariska was able to facilitate a reconciliation between Marcel and LaRue, but they're still working on Marinda. To be very honest with you, I don't know that it's such a great idea that Marinda has any role in her children's lives going forward as painful as it might be for them to cut their mother out of their lives, sometimes it's for the best, especially when your mother is Marinda Stain. Mariska tells me about a time when she visited Marinda in prison to take her a few things from her family on the outside. I went and visited Marinda twice or three times maybe, right? A lot of the times the family would actually ask me, you know, when you visit Larue, can you just drop something off for Marinda? You know, and then how do you say no? And then I think on Mother's Day, I had to drop something off her and I think I decided I'm going to go see her. You know what the thing with this, when I, when I actually met Marinda, right, it's so sad that She's such a, she gives you the impression of a, a, a school teacher. Like when you're around her, you immediately, feel, you immediately feel that authority of a school teacher, you know. And then I sat down with her, she was eating a pie. And then I remember her, you know, complaining about the arts and crafts section. And then she said, yeah, you know, she really wants to be part of, you know, making all these pretty bags that they were displaying there. But she says, yeah, but for some reason they don't trust her with scissors. Although Marinda is clearly trying to be funny here, I think it highlights one of two things. She's either really holding on to the I don't care attitude that's required to survive in jail, or she really does not give a hoot. The other parenting aspect of this case that I don't think gets enough attention is Cecilia and her relationship with her children. Both Jana Marx and Ben Boyson spoke to having seen video footage of Cecilia's young children being present on these so-called high nights 
where their mother would be writhing in fake pain and spewing her own blood from her mouth. In one video, a child sits playing games in the same room while this happens. In another, the child screams and cries in terror, watching their mother be attacked by these invisible forces. Honestly, I don't know which scene is more disturbing. We'll talk about the huge number of secondary victims in this case in the next episode. But Cecilia's own parents have suffered greatly from their daughter's actions. Zach Valentine's parents believed that their son was dead. They mourned him, and even when they discovered that he had purposefully put them through this pain, they still support him. I think that LaRue and Marcel Stain were victims of their mother in this case. And as much as I understand how their conditioning may have prevented them from coming forward, they still participated in these murders. Perhaps Marcel could have benefited from a different type of sentence, as Louis Averbuch suggests, but the judge did what he saw fit, and Marcel found her strength far too late. As with Cecilia and Zach, it is difficult to imagine how Mirinda went through her entire life harboring these pathologies, but it really is the only explanation. She was always this person. She just managed to be successful in certain areas of her life, despite that. Her pathologies came out in smaller, different ways, by controlling her children, by having difficulties with interpersonal relationships. And then she met the catalyst, and anything became possible. If you're a mother, and you find it impossible to understand how Mirinda overrode her maternal instinct to please Cecilia and serve her own desires, keep in mind that not all women that give birth are mothers. Thank you for listening to episode 3 of Devil's Dorp, the official companion podcast to the Showmax original series. Don't forget to give us a follow on the podcast app you're using to listen. And if you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to let Showmax know on their social media platforms you'd like to hear more of these in future. Next time on Devil's Dorp, the podcast. The aftermath of this case, for so many people, is indescribable. In episode 4, we discuss the secondary victims of this case. The possibility that the death count was far higher than we think. And we figure out what it's going to take to move forward from this horror. <laughs>